Welcome to the Pair Program from Hatchpad, the podcast that gives you a front row seat to candid conversations with tech leaders from the startup world. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, the creator of Hatchpad. And I'm your other host, Mike Ruin. Join us each episode as we bring together two guests to dissect topics at the intersection of technology, startups, and career growth. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Pair Program. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, joined by my co-host, Mike Gruen. Mike, what's going on? How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Wanted to play a quick game with you here. I gave you a little heads up on it, but I'm going to run it by you here. So my wife and I, over the weekend, we took a road trip and, you know, we're talking about some of our past pairings. And one one that came up was the road trips and, and car snacks. So here's the game. So if you're on a long road trip and you stop out at a gas station to fill up, you're heading into the store, uh, load up on snacks, drinks for the next leg, leg of the trip. You only had a $10 budget. What's on that list of items that you're that you're grabbing without exceeding $10? $10? Jerky. Beef jerky of some sort. Uh, okay, well, that's expensive. So you're going to... I think I just to... hit $9 right there. And then maybe... Yeah. <laughs> and maybe uh, if I can get a, a cheap cup of coffee or something, depending on what time of day it is, or some sort of drink. But jerky is just... A, jer- a jerky man? Yeah. Okay. I mean, for, for a road trip, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going peanut M&M's. Uh, small bag of Doritos, like the, the purple bag, the sweet mm-hmm. and spicy chili, uh, Red Bull, and a bottle of water. It's a, nice. Fully support the peanut M&M's. That's full, the, yeah, peanut M&M's are key. Yeah, I mean, chocolate, peanut butter, <laughs> a little protein, a little sweetness. Yeah, yep. that's right. All right, good good times. <laughs> um, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's give our listeners a, a preview of today's episode. So, Today, we're going to be talking about the final frontier uh, space uh, topic that I'm personally a, a big fan of. I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will appreciate this episode. Uh, sp- specifically, we're going to be talking about space tech as a vertical, uh, dissecting how to innovate, um, or I'm sorry, how to innovative startups are kind of pioneering in the industry. So for today's discussion, we've looped in two guests that are joining us from two space tech startups. Uh, we have Ben Reed, who is the co-founder and CTO of Quantum Space, um, also notably worked directly with NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center for a number of years, uh, and Derek Strobel, the lead software engineer for Kahan Space. Um, also, I'd like to highlight that Derek was the first employee hired at this early stage startup. So Ben and Derek, thank you both for joining us on the PAIR program. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Excellent. Thanks Good stuff. All right. Now, uh, before we dive into the discussion, we do like to kick things off with a fun segment called Pair Me Up. This is where we will go around the room and kind of spitball a couple of uh, our favorite pairings. Mike, you kick us off. Uh, What do you got for us today? So today's is um, anxiety and courage. Um, So um, sort of having to get over that anxiety and and the courage to do and things like that. It's somewhat personal. Um, My son went off to... uh, Boy Scout camp recently um, was very nervous about it um, because there's it's a pretty chaotic scene um, sort of and dealt with it and got over it and it was turned out to be a great trip um, so it's sort of inspiring just sort of remembering that like anxiety is fine it's what's you know that's fine and then the courage to get over it so that's that's my parent cool I dig that how long has he gone for uh, a week and it's a it's a trip he's done 
several times, but it gets there's a lot of sleep deprivation, and because uh, it's, it's Boy Scouts, they're sort of responsible for themselves and doing a lot of things, and so it's um, the anxiety of like not having to be responsible for getting every single thing done himself and maybe mm-hmm. relying on some of the other guys in the troop to, to pull their weight sometimes. So, um, so yeah, so that's nice. Fun. Yep. It's uh, I, I speak to a lot of school groups and, uh, I tell a personal story where, um, um, I've taken, a, um, pretty big career steps in my career and, uh, was not qualified for any of the steps when I took them. <laughs> But if you, uh, and that made me, you know, a little bit of imposter syndrome and by a little bit, I mean a lot. Um, but I always advise, uh, these, uh, these school age kids that, uh, in your life, you need to be comfortable with being a little afraid. You need to be okay with having little anxiety because if you're completely qualified for the very next step in your career, well, how big of a step is that? Right. Right. That if you really want growth, you need to be able to go for those, those, uh, those quantum leaps which is actually part of where the name of my company comes from. Um, you have to be comfortable with being uh, a little uncomfortable. Um, and that's sometimes hard for them to grasp, but I think it's an important concept to, uh, to get across early on in, in, in young people's uh, minds. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Yeah. I've been reading a book called mindset too. It's kind of a, you know, positioning yourself in that growth mindset uh, versus fixed mindset where growth mindset, it's okay to make mistakes because you, you learn from them, you grow from them. Um, whereas fixed mindset, you come down on yourself really hard and you, know, you feel ashamed. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good to, good to hear that from you, Ben. I'd also say, you know, uh, anxiety sometimes uh, in bourbon could also uh, be a pairing as well. And, uh, and not for Boy Scouts, you got to be of age and uh, we don't advocate all of that for the youth. Um, all right, I'll, I'll jump in now. So I'm going to um, I'm going to go with the chiropractor and euphoria. Um, so I saw a, a chiropractor for the fir- very first time recently. I've never been to one before. I've always heard mixed reviews from folks on Kairos, like, you know, getting adjustments that some horror stories, some uh, amazing stories. Uh, so I had some, some lower back pain for a few months. I thought I'd give it a try. And I, I had no idea how the equipment all worked. But, um, you know, for those that have never experienced this before, I'll paint the picture for you. So they kind of lay you out on a, a table. Uh, they call it a drop table. Um, it's got these adjustable sections that use hydraulics to kind of raise or lower different sections to target different sections of your spine. And um, they use this to perform like adjustments. So, uh, you know, have never seen one before. Uh, I don't regularly crack my back or, or my neck. Um, so I can just tell you that this, this woman, this woman cracked the hell out of my body <laughs> and it felt, it felt incredible. And so it was only about 15 minutes, but afterwards I stood up and, they can only describe this feeling as, as euphoric. So, uh, I have signed up for a few, uh, you know, ongoing, uh, adjustments, uh, the next few months, I'll be sure to kind of give a, a follow-up review and see if it's, uh, still, still serving as that same descriptor. But, um, have either of you all been to the, uh, a chiropractor before? Sounds kind of scary to be honest. Yeah. What you just described, I think, yeah. I'm, I think I'm a little less likely now. Just by the youth work. Uh, I had yeah. an uncle who went, and he became like addicted to it. So uh, I've been hesitant. You're not helping my case, Mike. That just, no, I'm you not know, trying to help your case. I'm hesitant to do it too. I had I had lower back pain for a while, and I found out that my problem was a lot simpler because I was just spending too much time in my chair. So I got mm-hmm. to get out of that problem without having to. <laughs> the only expensive equipment I needed was my own legs. There you go. Yeah, Stand, standing desk is also helpful. Yeah. 
All right, good stuff. Um, well, let's go ahead and pass it on to our guest now. So Derek, why don't you give us a, a quick intro and then uh, tell us your pairing? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, my name is Derek Strobel. I'm the lead software engineer at Can Space, as Tim uh, introduced me. So I've been working in spaceflight safety software for about five years now, and I'm um, just looking forward to, you know, continuing doing that here at Can Space uh, with all that we're doing. So Thanks for having me and uh, my pairing today. So I'm a new homeowner actually this year, uh, first time homeowner. So my pairing is garden related, gardening related. So it's actually, and I also brought props. <laughs> so my pairing is uh, eating blueberries from my own garden. Mm. And <laughs> this hat that I bought that makes me feel like a little farmer. Hey, nice. Not fun. <laughs> I just walk around my yard, picking blueberries, eating them right off the bush. What you can do with that? That's fantastic. Nice. That what, fantastic. What else are uh, what else are you gardening out there? What are you growing? Yeah, I mean it's our first year growing stuff, so there's not a ton. We have like one big raised bed, so we've got tomatoes, obviously, the the quintessential summer summer veggie, um, which are still all green. But I'm really looking forward to eating one. We get grew some cilantro, which I immediately messed up and has since bolted and flowered. Uh, live you learn. <laughs> some brassicas. Uh, so going to be expanding our garden a lot next year for sure. Nice, cool. Good stuff. Yeah, I've always found like gardening or getting out the yard like that's therapeutic too. It's like a good way to just burn off some stress as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and bonus points too. That's the first time we've had props uh, introduced. So yeah, trailblazing, Derek. I, I love yeah, it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, good stuff. Uh, let's pass it along to our our next guest, Ben. Uh, quick intro from yourself and and your parent. Uh, so intro for myself. Uh, father of four kids. Four fabulous kids. Um, been married uh, 32 years, just coming October. I know it's impossible for somebody who looks as young as I do uh, <laughs> to be married there long. Um, uh, back a, a decade ago, about somewhere around 2010, my wife said that um, to help out a friend who was running an animal shelter, uh, we should uh, foster puppies for them. So we just hold on to the puppy that's going to be uh, put down in a in a high kill shelter. We hold on to them until somebody else reviews the application. Thankfully, that wasn't uh, that wasn't me or us. Um, uh, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for a few months, mm. until they until they're adopted to a uh, forever home. So from 2010 to 2020, uh, with the pandemic kind of uh, altered things a little bit. Uh, we fostered about 120 dogs coming through our house. Wow. Um, and, uh, so that was, um, sometimes stressful, uh, but, uh, on the, on the balance, it was fabulously rewarding and it was great for my four kids growing up, uh, to go through that experience, to, to take care of, of things more helpless than them. Um, so my pairing is uh, puppies and laminate flooring. <laughs> <laughs> well played. You, you do not want hardwoods. You do not want carpet. You want laminate flooring fabulous to clean up so that's that's my pairing for the day nice wow that's that's, that's a strong strong pairing <laughs> <Wise choice. laughs> well, well played well played 120 dogs that's incredible so also um, teaches your kids to let things go <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is a good sure. lesson yeah i'll tell you not to make this podcast about that but i'll tell you the uh people often ask me how did you how did you let them go it, we already, we had two dogs of our own. One was a foster fail, and one was one was ours um, beforehand. Um, and so we had two. Most the vast majority of people adopting were going from zero to one, or sometimes zero to two. And so to see 
the joy that the dog would bring into their lives, mm -hmm. it made turning them over so much easier. If if it was a black wall and I didn't get to to have the uh, the experience of seeing their faces light up, it would have been a lot harder. But to see the joy that the puppies were bringing them, it made turning them over not not always easy, but but uh, uh, incredibly rewarding. Awesome. That's great. So, so you all didn't ever adopt your own in the house, just one. Yeah, just one. We had a little guy about eight, about uh, uh, fifteen pounds, who uh, w went deaf because of parvo when he was in a, a kennel before coming to us. Huh. It was a little bit harder to uh, to place, and so we we kept the little guy. We still have him today. That's our that little guy's name is Nathan. Uh -huh. So Nathan is still with us today. Nice. Wonderful. Yeah. Good stuff. Awesome. Well, I love it. Uh, it's good round. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's keep things rolling here. Uh, transition into the main topic. So like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about, you know, navigating the space tech industry and kind of hearing this firsthand from our guest, uh, some of these different use cases with how technology is innovating in the space, uh, discuss some of the unique challenges that startups and commercial companies face when, when pioneering in the space. Um, talk a little bit about this shift uh, in the space tech market from government back to commercial backed. And then for those listeners who are curious or interested in exploring opportunities in the vertical, we'll cover hiring and, and navigating a career in the space tech industry. So um, a lot to get to. Uh, why don't we have uh, Ben, you kick us off and, and maybe first Give us a little bit of background and context on the work that Quantum Space is doing, uh, some of these problems that you're solving, and then we'll do the same with you, Derek, on, on Kahan. But let's start with you, Ben. Sure. Uh, so uh, my career was 22 years with uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center um, in, in Greenbelt, Maryland, just outside of D.C. Um, I, uh, I uh, took a rotational assignment to the White House and, and spent a little time in the White House um, on the National Space Council staff uh, back in 2018. Um, and then in 2020, um, about the same time that I was getting out of the dog fostering business, um, I was ready for some new challenges. And so I decided to um, um, leave the government and I joined up with a gentleman by the name of Cam Gaffarian. Uh, and he and I co-founded uh, Quantum Space. Uh, so we are a company founded on the belief that uh, as humanity expands outward from the Earth to low Earth orbit, the geosynchronous orbit, and further out towards the moon, um, that uh, uh, there is opportunity for a, a company like Quantum to provide uh, essential services, uh, communication services, position, navigation, and timing, uh, transportation services. We can give people a ride to that orbit. Uh, we can also host their payload on our spacecraft, uh, both in geo and in, in cislunar space, uh, out by the moon. Um, and uh, we, we feel that we bring a tremendous value to our, to our customers uh, with the experience that we bring uh, in that space. Um, all activities in space are difficult. Um, but the further away from you go from the Earth, the, give, the difficulty goes up nonlinearly. And so um, anything above the GPS constellation makes navigation um, much, much harder. Communication gets more difficult. Um, so we're out there tackling those hard problems. And we look forward to, to helping our customers um, uh, do their missions more efficiently and more effectively uh, with the services that we can provide them. 
Very cool. And so it's just a couple of years old. Um, I guess how many employees and uh, any funding to this point and, and to what amount? Uh, yeah, so we are a year and a half old. Uh, we started uh, January of 21. Uh, we're about 35 or so full-time employees. Um, with part-time and interns, it's, I don't know, closer to 45 maybe. Um, uh, we are Series A is complete and uh, oversubscribed, so our funding is solid. Um, no issues there. Um, and uh, we are continuing to make progress on our on our plans. Cool. Love it. Uh, yeah, right there in our, our backyard. Is it Rockville, your headquarters? Uh, yeah, Rockville, Maryland, just outside the, the D.C. Beltway. Excellent. Awesome. Uh, Derek, how about a little bit more uh, background on, on Kahan? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Kahan Space, we uh, began in 2019 and um, are kind of like to ship ourselves as a space, situa space situational awareness software company. So um, the idea being um, space situational awareness, you know, sounds like kind of a mouthful, but the idea is really just pursuing space flight safety for satellites by being aware of um, potential risks to your spacecraft as a satellite operator, right? So whether that's uh, collisions or whatever it may be, um, space situational awareness is the, you know, pursuit of, um, you know, flying, flying spacecraft safely. So, um, and yeah, like I mentioned, we founded the company in 2019. Well, we, I say we, I was around, but I was not a founder. So I was employee number one into Kahan Space. Um, along with our CEO, CMAC Kessar, and uh, CTO Aras Fazy, who I've been uh, actually have known CMAC from previous uh, jobs. So um, we got along well together, and I was serendipitously around for the founding of the company, uh, which has been a pretty wild ride since then. So um, after that, in 2020, we went through the Techstars uh, Allied Space uh, Accelerator program, startup accelerator, which was um, huge, kind of you know getting the ball rolling. Obviously, in 2020, everything was pretty. Um, you know, turbulent in the tech industry and just kind of, you know, at large um, in the world. But um, we managed to get through that. And uh, in 2021, we completed our seed round uh, funding with uh, Root Ventures and Overline BC that um, kind of really jump-started our hiring process and allowed us to build up to, in 2022, we released our um, our first two kind of flagship uh, products. So those being Kahan Pathfinder, which is our um, space traffic coordination platform uh, for satellite operators to um, analyze conjunction information and basically mitigate the risk of colliding into other spacecraft or debris or anything like that um, in space, as well as Kahan Gamut, which is our um, launch collision avoidance service. So for um, launch missions, um, you know, coming from the Earth's surface. How do you get into space without hitting anything on the way there is essentially the problem statement there. Um, yeah, so that's that's a little bit about Kahan. Um, looking forward to talking more. Cool. What, uh, well, same questions, I guess, uh, as for Ben, like headcount at this point, um, where, where you all currently stand? Yeah, yeah. So the company is based in Boulder, Colorado, but we actually are a hybrid uh, organiz organization. So I work in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, we have folks scattered all across the U.S. Um, right now, we run a little bit of a smaller ship. So I think we're right around the 20 head count um, at the moment, mostly distributed in engineering. Um, and yeah, in terms of funding, we raised that seed round in 2021 that I mentioned and um, nothing more to report there, but uh, looking forward to, you know, uh, news coming out in the future. Yeah, I don't think I knew that you guys came through the uh, Techstars uh, uh, Accelerator Program. That's really neat. Yeah, um, we've had relationships with a few different um, startup accelerator programs, including um, the... Oh, I should have came prepared with the names off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, AWS, uh, Hyperspace Challenge, um, but Techstars Allied Space was our first big 
um, introduction to the world of startup accelerators, which um, was a new experience for me. It was definitely um, a, a big adjustment, but I think it was a, a great experience. So definitely. Nice. Recommend it. And we'll, we'll certainly have some questions about being first in engineering hire. That's always a, a fascinating uh, story in itself, but uh, let's stay on topic here. Um, let's, let's jump into one of the first uh, points here. So, so Ben, you know, when we talk about some of these different challenges that, you know, commercial startups will face when, innovating in, in the space tech industry. What, what are some of these challenges? Um, and, and I guess, how is, how is Quantum addressing these challenges? How are other companies addressing these challenges? Uh, yeah, so uh, I don't want to imply that space is, is the hardest industry, but we do have some unique challenges that some others don't. Um, and I'll, I'll give a, the example I like to give with that is um, uh, self-driving cars. If you if you think you got great software, or great sensors for a self-driving car, you buy a couple of cheap cars and you go to a field. And if you crash into a tree, well, does anybody does anybody care? Does anybody know? So you can crash into a hundred trees um, as you as you develop um, um, your your prowess in all the necessary technologies. Uh, if you're a space company and you need to uh, pay for a rocket launch into space, now you're talking you know, uh, easily millions of dollars, if not tens of millions of dollars, and some people pay hundreds of millions of dollars to, just to get to the location that you want to operate in, as opposed to driving into a field. Um, um, and then you turn the thing on. And if there's a bad day, you may need to restart and, and do that over again. And so there is a, a, a capital barrier to entry to get flight-proven systems. Um, and um, uh, many uh, government uh, agencies are reticent to, to invest in your product um, without being flight proven. And so there, we, there's this uh, uh, area between we've developed it on the ground, it hasn't gone to space yet, and that in space world known as the valley of death. Uh, and it, it's very difficult for some companies to cross the valley of death. Some aren't able to do it. Um, some are able to do it if you're your software only or very small sensors that can ride along where you're not critical to the functioning of the of the larger spacecraft. Uh, it's a little bit easier. And so there are ways to nibble at it. And I, as I'm not suggesting that that everybody goes through the same hurdles, but, um, but that's kind of a unique challenge that, that all space companies um, face. And then, you know, COVID uh, gave us the same challenges that a lot of industries had, although I must say, in some regards, COVID uh, was less challenging for us because the time span to, in round terms, to dis, uh, design, develop, build, test, and launch a satellite, uh, it's hard to do it less than two years. So three or four years might be the more typical program. So if there's a world pandemic that takes the world down for one year, what is that in a four-year cycle, right? And so for I know it destroyed some businesses completely, and I feel terrible uh, for those for those uh, individuals. Um, so the space industry did not suffer some of the, the terrible uh, causes that, that, that the pandemic did cause, um, but, but we have our own unique challenges. So, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, so you all are, are building satellites. Um, do you have any currently that are out uh, that have been launched? Uh, we do not. We are using our funding to develop those satellites, mm -hmm. uh, as I said, in that, that two, three, four year process. So we're a year and a half into that process. So we are not yet at the buying a rocket stage. Um, so that's that's a year or two into our future. 
um, looking at that that macro time scale. Um, um, yeah, stay stay tuned. We will be having additional news about launches uh, coming out shortly, but nothing quite yet to announce. Okay. Uh, so, so Derek, why don't we, why don't you fill us in a little bit more from like a building perspective, right? You know, you're, you're building software here. What, what kind of challenges are, are you up against? And, you know, maybe, you know, for your customers, you know, what, what makes this a little bit unique or different from, you know, maybe a, a FinTech uh, software or something along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, the main thing that I, I think we ran into as a young company and continue to, you know, constantly kind of see as a challenge going forward. And I think a lot of space companies will will agree is basically just availability of data, right? Data is kind of the lifeblood of any software company, obviously, but um, I would say especially so in space, almost like Ben was talking about earlier, how, um, you know, we have kind of everyone else's challenges, but kind of compounded by just the complexity of space, right? Um, so specifically, we're talking about data, um, you know, data is really hard to come by, especially in, in the space industry and, and reliable data at that. So, um, and when I say data, I'm really talking about relative to Kahan space. What we do is uh, predict and try to mitigate the risk of collisions, right? And so that's all about predicting what's going to happen in the future, right? But predictions are based on uh, observations, right? They're based on observations of reality that are extrapolated into the future. And if those observations are not of high quality, or if you don't have very many of them, it's really difficult to make those accurate predictions into the future. And if that's your business, then it's, you know, it's important to get and have access to a lot of high quality uh, observation data. And that's something that's very expensive if you want to purchase from commercial data providers. So there's whole companies whose whole business is basically operating sensors, telescopes, you know, things like that, whether they're on the ground or in space for observing the, you know, positions of, of satellites in orbit, you know, tracking data as, it, as we refer to it. Or also uh, the U.S. government is a huge data provider in and of itself. Where they operate, you know, the U.S. DOD, Department of Defense runs a huge sensor network called the Space Surveillance Network that for the, for the purposes of U.S., you know, and allied nations, spaceflight safety collects and distributes a bunch of data. But each one of those comes with its own challenges. I mean, government, you know, provided data um, has is subject to export controls. A lot of it is classified, or at least the good quality data is classified and kind of difficult to get your hands on, especially if you don't have um, a big network, right? If you're a small company, you're just getting started. Um, it can be really difficult to kind of get your hands on the um, the materials, the raw materials needed to produce these kind of um, you know high quality products that you want to sell to customers that people need, right? I mean, you know, one of the things Ben was talking about earlier is that barrier to entry for uh, you know spaceflight companies to build spacecraft and one of those barriers to entry that Kahan observes is the ability to fly your spacecraft safely and be confident that you, you know, you'll see risks coming up in, in terms of spaceflight safety. So, you know, it, we want to reduce the barrier of entry to this product or to this, um, you know, reduce the barrier of entry to flying, flying your spacecraft safely. And one of the big challenges that we observe is access to those, uh, those you know, tracking information to actually make those predictions. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, it all seems like it's it's also moving very fast right now. There's a a lot uh, that's changed over the last you know ten plus years here. Let's let's touch on some of those things, Ben, that you've seen. Um, you know, some of this transition maybe from a lot more of these private companies like SpaceX that are popping up. What where has where has this shift gone from that you've you've seen with like the historical role of the government in space exploration and how it's evolved now uh, with you know, a lot more commercial um, companies getting involved. Yeah. Um, 
in the early days, uh, back uh, 50, 60 years ago, basically, uh, well, the government was the dominant uh, influence in all uh, space missions. And today, it's only dominant in most. Um, uh, they, you know, uh, 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 there's a the famous line in the Apollo 13 movie where they're asking the uh, the manufacturer of the lunar module, you know, can you do this thing we need it to do? Hey, we weren't signed up to do that. You know, Grumman, Grumman only built it to land on the, on the surface of the moon. Well, we know that, but can it do this other thing? So, so Grumman was around, it helped build the lunar lander. So it's not that contractors haven't been around for a while. They've been around since the beginning. But uh, the big shift is uh, for the first uh, uh, four or five decades, um, they basically did what the government asked them to do. And very few, some, but, but few uh, overall um, um, uh, commercial space companies were completely independent of, of government contracts. Uh, the one notable exception would be communication satellites, um, yeah, geo, geosynchronous uh, communication satellites. Um, fast forward to today, the cost of launch has come down. It's still uh, crazy high, but it has come down, and that has allowed venture-backed commercial companies like myself to move ahead with plans, not in absence of, of trying to win government contracts, but not wholly dependent upon and... Um, uh, I guess because I have four kids that were just recently teenagers and one still is. Um, I, my metaphor is uh, in the beginning, uh, commercial space industry was like a child living with a parent. The parent was the government. Uh, they did some independent things. They would ride their bike to the pool and come back without the parents, you know, as a 12-year-old. But they came back home at the end of the night. Now, the space, commercial space industry is no longer a teenager. It's now a 20-year-old, and it, they're doing things completely independent of the government. The government is still uh, the, the single largest owner-operator of satellites in space, um, and the U.S. government is. Um, but uh, there are some companies that, that are, are moving out to care less what, uh, what the government is doing. So, so the, there is this evolution of, of capabilities um, and funding to, 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 to generate those capabilities. Uh, that just didn't exist in in decades past, um, and I think the future is bright. You know, the greatest things happen when uh, industries, uh, commercial industries, and the government work together uh, for to do things. And uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Everyone says, "Wow, this is the most exciting time in space." Well, every decade, people say that because it's evolving and it is only uh, growing and growing. So. I think our, our brightest, uh, our golden eras are still in front of us, uh, not behind us. I'm, I'm very bullish on the, on the commercial space uh, um, future. Yeah, that's exciting. I know that, you know, that, uh, an easy one to point out would be, I guess, the, the, the usage of reusable rockets, um, kind of decreasing that cost of, of launching, you know, payloads into space. Um, but you've touched on something as well, Derek, about... Um, uh, you know, within like the Department of Defense, you know, what what kind of use cases are you seeing um, as the most viable for, you know, your all software? And um, I guess, how are you prioritizing like where your your best you know, product market fit is? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, and, you know, going along with what Ben was saying, um, a lot of the narrative around this topic is that, you know, the shift from the U.S. government as, as you know, controlling the space industry to the commercial, you know, spaceflight operators. And I think while that's an important conversation, it's definitely um, good to keep in mind that 
as Ben was saying right on, the U.S. government is still a huge, huge, the biggest player in the space, right? And so we, we feel that, uh, you know, or at least I personally feel that um, the, the key to success in, in this world is kind of figuring out how to balance those two, right? If you're trying to sell spaceflight safety software or any, any software that has to do with, you know, um, this kind of wild west that we're talking about with, you know, the modern space industry, um, you, you'll have to interact with both entities, right? With commercial entities who are, you know, as, as Ben was saying, who kind of couldn't, couldn't care less <laughs> how the U.S. government is operating. They're caring less and less every year. Um, but also acknowledging that the U.S. government is um, a huge source of funding for U.S. commercial companies who want to sell, you know, sell uh, software products. And, um, and that also, you know, not only that in terms of funding, uh, maybe a, a less cynical point of view would be um, the U.S. government and, and, you know, the entities within it are the origins of some of the, you know, most of the foundation that that commercial space flight safety, you know, or, or space flight industry uh, are built on, right? All the algorithms and things like that have their roots, um, or, you know, many of them do in research and, you know, missions flown by the U.S. government, NASA, you know, NOAA, all of those kind of organizations, and obviously the DOD. So, you know, long, long-winded way of getting to your question is, um, I think we, we definitely want to balance selling our products to both individual small operators, you know, who are commercial, who are not really worried about, um, you know, the, the national security missions or anything like that flown by the U.S. government who are just have a small, easy to understand business model because they need the barrier of entry, you know, lowered to like flying their mission safely, but as well acknowledging that there's a huge opportunity for the U.S. government as well as a customer for us. And one last thing I want to mention on that topic, too, is that even with the U.S. government, um, a lot of the responsibility and the, the, you know, the day-to-day operations of spaceflight are even shifting within the U.S. government, not just from it. So a good example of that is the tracks or traffic coordination system for space program that's you know being undertaken as as part of this shift from uh, space flight safety responsibility from the Department of Defense to the Department of Commerce in the U.S. government. So that's a huge kind of seismic shift in the, the big players in uh, a lot of the, one of the the kind of big topics in that space is. Um, space traffic management, right? How do you manage all of these spacecraft kind of all, you know, operating independently? Um, so I just wanted to highlight too, that the shift is going on, not just between the government and commercial worlds, but within the US government itself. And that has mm. a big impact on, on how I, we, we should operate as commercial you know, entities. And that touches a little bit on like what I was going to ask about. So I get it. And I think Ben, you mentioned it, the idea that like, okay, commercial is caring less and less about what the government want, you know, the need there, but I'm sure the government still cares a lot about the commercial space and making sure that people are operating safety and securely. I, I think back to, I don't know, I, I'm sure that I read some sci-fi thing when I was a kid about how we all got trapped on the planet because like all these satellites collided and then like it was just chaos, you know, because you couldn't leave, you know, couldn't go to orbit. <laughs> well, I would say the government cares for two reasons. They care for two reasons. One, they want less expensive stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, the, there's a there's a, a little phrase that the space force says a lot: uh, buy it if you can, and only build it if you must. Right? And, uh, and so, and and right, if they they care about tax dollars as, as much as we do, and so they definitely care greatly about what commercial companies uh, like K Han and Quantum are doing, so they can buy uh, commercial services and not have to build a bespoke system. Uh, themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so they care about that. And they also care because the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which I, I know you guys keep under your pillow at night, 
Um, I was just reading it actually, just as a refresher. States <laughs> that uh, launching states are responsible for you know launch supervision and then uh, launch authorization and continual supervision of every space asset. And so you know before you put anything into space, you have to go to multiple government agencies to get uh, authorization to launch. And this is true. This is true worldwide. Um, and so. So the, the governments uh, definitely uh, care what commercial companies are doing for, for both those reasons. Hmm. Yeah, it's great to hear about the, you know, the venture capital side of things, um, obviously, you know, needed for the commercial startup side of, of those, the next wave of companies innovating. Um, it sounds like also, you know, we're, we're tracking a lot of these, you know, smaller satellites, you know, it's almost like a miniaturization of satellites being being launched so it's it's creating obviously a you know a supply and demand thing right so the more satellites that are getting pushed out there's going to be a demand for many more companies to help them with like navigating you know not colliding with one another and so forth so um uh, love to see you know a little bit more of that increase happening in the space um i, I did want to um you know spend some of the <clears throat> remaining time here talking about you know a lot of folks Super interested and intrigued on how to tap into into this industry, um, you know. So hearing it firsthand from you all, so Derek, let's start, let's start with you here on this. Um, you know, I I know that you mentioned that you had a connection with the founders from a previous past life, but you know, when you all are hiring engineers and and looking for talent, you know, what is it that you're kind of looking for from a you know from a skill set perspective? What kind of a experience do you really kind of pro- prioritize that you think would flourish in this industry? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the biggest thing I want to encourage folks who are looking to break into kind of the space software industry, and I, you know, I kind of applied it right there, is that intersectionality, right, or, or interdisciplinary nature of it, right? I mean, you know, as Ben was saying, everything we do in, in space flight is a difficult problem, but they're actually also difficult for a couple of different reasons that are related to both software and aerospace engineering kind of in tandem. So what I, you know, I'm always looking for candidates who kind of demonstrate that at least they're willing to kind of really deeply dig into both of those dual aspects of, of the of the job, right? I mean, every problem that we solve when we're building spaceflight software of any kind is both a very complex engineering problem in and of itself for software engineers to, to solve, but also has a lot of complexity just in the domain-specific, you know, problems that we're solving in aerospace itself. So, so candidates who are either have experience or even just show a... Uh, a, a willingness to kind of dig into the problem that they're passionate about, you know, space flight and space in general, and, you know, understanding those, those deep problems. Um, I think that's the number one thing that I would communicate. You know, not everyone's going to be able to get an MS in software and aerospace engineering. That's, you know, what we call a unicorn candidate in tech, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, we're not looking for those people necessarily as so much as people who demonstrate a strength, but also an interest in, in the other aspect, you know. Awesome. Yeah, Ben, I'm going to flip the same question to you over at Quantum Space. You know, what is it that you all are really, you know, interested in when you're talking to folks? Yeah, I think I think Derek hit it. Um, you, it's it's hard to train passion, right? If you get somebody who's passionate um, about what they do, um, you know, that is that is worth uh, a tremendous amount. Um, uh, in particular, I'll, I'll only speak for my um, uh, my company. Uh, 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 a willingness to be along the journey, the wayfinding journey, right? There are some companies that build widgets and they've been doing it for years. And when you join that company, you know, you're going to be building more widgets. Um, 
that is not yet the case with our company. We, uh, we have a North Star vision to provide essential services to entities going into geo and cislunar space. But the specific path, what we're going to be working on next month, it might change slightly. And that, you know, that's called wayfinding, right? You get to the top of the mountain, but there's a tree right in front of you. Well, you go around the tree. So for a brief period of time, you're not going directly towards the top of the mountain. You're going orthogonal to it. So having an employee or a candidate when we interview them that is comfortable with a bit of wayfinding because they know the North Star vision is worth it and the reward is going to be uh, is going to be there to be part of something greater than themselves, uh, to be part of a, a new company that's growing, um, but you know, willing to to be along the journey for that wayfinding. Um, th those are two big aspects that uh, that we look for when we do our hiring. I'm curious, Ben. You you touched on this earlier about the the timeline it takes for some of these projects to go, and I think that's probably another area that's very different between some of the other spaces, right? And like, I worked with a guy. He was a, his first job was at Garvin. Um, and he was like, it took forever, like every change, like there were 15 tests that needed to be updated in months and months and months of testing before like anything happened. And I'm curious, like, is that still sort of the case? Um, I assume it is. Um, yeah, that's, and, yeah. Yeah, that's a super insight. Um, um, I have a good friends of mine who, uh, like I mentioned, I worked at Goddard and I, I staged a prop <laughs> for the video. You see my, my Hubble Space Telescope over my shoulder. I worked on the last three Hubble servicing missions. When I when I first joined NASA, that was what's what I did the first 12 years. I, I worked the first three Hubble servicing missions, and that was the first 10 years, 2009 to, to uh, 1999 to 2009. Um, and I was super lucky. In 10 years, I had three missions under my belt. I know people that joined working James Webb Space Telescope. They worked on that project for 25 years, and then they had their first launch. Right. Now, there's a lot of milestones along the way. We passed this test, we passed this milestone, we passed this other milestone. But if you're looking for those really big payoffs in the space business, you, you gotta bide your time sometimes and look at the look at the wonderful payoff that the web employees got when that thing got to orbit. So so I, I can't imagine their relief when that uh, rocket succeeded and that lift off. Right. Um, and then all the deployments. But is that something that you sort of interview, like when you're talking to candidates, are you trying to gauge like their um, that, that sort of um, ability to, to deal with that, I guess, is, is sort of my question. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that it's that it's a, an interview question to say, are you comfortable with not getting a launch for a year? Um, mo mo most people we interview are somewhat familiar with the aerospace business, you know, um, and so uh, th that is a that is a very good insight. But uh, yeah, that doesn't really come up in the interview. Maybe that's just implicit, right? When they when they uh, um, uh, apply to work for a space company, that the milestones might be the big milestones might be might be years apart. Right. Yeah, probably probably not. You know, talking to the the, the B to C app, uh, you <laughs> know, fl flippers out there. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, let's. Um, uh, I guess I I just have one more question before we we jump into the final segment. So you know. Uh, just from your all's, you know, research and, and what you're you're hearing out there, what what are some of you know any future trends in, in this industry that you're um, you're keen to or that you're really cued in on? Uh, any any future trends in the space tech industry that that you'd like to share or you're yeah. getting excited about? I've got one, you know, right off the top of my head, which is kind of relates to what I was talking about with the um, 
the uh, tracks program with the U.S. government, the traffic coordination coordination system, and really it's about coordination between satellite operators, right? Um, so it's, it's space traffic coordination, I guess, is the you know the terminology we'd use. Um, you know, basically just having kind of establishing the uh, the precedent that spaceflight operators are you know talking to one another and coordinating for the purpose of spaceflight safety. I think is you know, it's a huge industry shift that's kind of happening right now. And part of those, you know, there's a lot of commercial companies like ourselves who are very invested in this process. But also, as I mentioned, you know, the US government is keenly aware of the problem and putting a lot of resources into developing, you know, systems and tools and all, you know, all of that stuff to, you know, address the problem. So I think it's, I think it's very important that we kind of face it head on and really think, you know, not just how we can solve this problem as it exists today. But you know, as you guys were talking about, as in five years and 10 years, as the population of especially Leo in particular grows more and more, um, how can we establish systems now that are going to be, you know, still reliable and robust and scalable up to the point when we have many, many more spacecraft and businesses, individual businesses and entities trying to all operate in, in this, you know, shared space environment. And maybe just to clarify for listeners that, that aren't cued in, Leo means... Low Earth orbit, yeah. So basically, the, the the closest things to Earth that are above, you know, the Kalman line are considered in space. Yeah, what? Just comment on Leo for a second, because I speak to a lot of school groups. Uh, again, pointing to Hubble over my shoulder, which is about at the same altitude as the International Space Station. When Hubble passes overhead here in Washington D.C., it's closer uh, to D.C. than driving from here to New York City. Wow. Right? Low Earth orbit is pretty darn low, right? Mm -hmm. It is like low. Um, it is only hundreds of miles up. And then, you know, you can go way out the moon. It's quarter of a million miles and things start really getting far away after mm -hmm. that. So, yeah, Leo is pretty, pretty low. That's fascinating. And then you all are also doing a lot of work between, you know, the Earth and, moon, and the moon. Is that right? Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the trends, it, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So trends that you're, that you're excited about or you're picking up on. Yeah, um, so uh, mobility. Mobility is, um, is desired for, for a lot of folks. So um, Kepler uh, is, you know, first discovered the, the motions of the planets, by right? Keplerian motion. Um, and what's uh, the magic of a Keplerian motion is it takes no energy to stay in it. Right? Once you get trapped in it, once you are in a Keplerian orbit, it takes no energy. The flip side of that is if you want to do anything but stay in that orbit, you need to spend energy. You need to expend propellant out of the back end and make yourself go forward, right? Equal and opposite. Um, so for the first 60 years, 99% of every satellite gets into a Keplerian orbit and just stays there for its entire life. And then it gets retired or turns into a piece of debris. Um, but people are looking for, are envisioning missions where they want to have mobility. They want to move. They want to change orbits. And uh, a propellant tank on a spacecraft is sometimes really big. It's a huge percent. Um, I think a geo spacecraft, a geosynchronous orbit spacecraft, half of the launch mass, half of the weight of that thing sitting on the launch pad is fuel. And that goes into a Keplerian orbit and stays there the rest of its life. And so you can imagine if you wanted to have the flexibility to move your satellite around for to collect more science, to do more exploration, or to uh, figure out what the bad guys are up to, um, that requires fuel, that requires a uh, propellant. And so there's a big trend in the industry, a big macro trend where people, lots of uh, uh, government agencies, what I used to do when I was with NASA before I left, um, was work on robotic refueling. 
So the ability to refuel the satellite, to give it more life, to give it more mobility, it gives generals and scientists and astronauts alike the ability to do more things in space. Um, and uh, it is not commonplace today. The only one thing is routinely refueled, and that's the International Space Station. Everything else, it's, it's a crazy one-off, or it never, never gets refueled at all. 99.99999% of all satellites will die with the single load of fuel they had when they launched. Um, but ask me again in five years and again in 10 years, and that percent is going to start to swing the other direction. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. If I could chime in on that mobility topic, too, because I think it's also really important. Um, two things. So there's one, uh, I think it's a huge industry trend. There's a lot of commercial companies also working on this problem. Uh, shout mm -hmm. out to OrbitFab, who's a friend of Chaos Space. Um, so it's it's definitely an active field that's being developed. And also, I also want to tie it back to spaceflight safety. You know, Ben mentioned a lot of mission-specific, uh, you know, use cases for having, you know, propellant on the spacecraft to expend, um, you know, collecting more science or whatever it may be. But another huge use case for uh, mobility on a spacecraft is for avoiding, you know, mitigating the risk of conjunction, right? Um, that's something that we deal with all the time. We have a lot of, you know, run into a lot of cases where um, operators have a spacecraft, they, we can predict the conjunction, but they can't mitigate the risk of that conjunction because the spacecraft isn't maneuverable. So that's another huge, huge kind of trend in the industry that I think we should really try and pursue is having more spacecraft be maneuverable. Um, not only for their own benefit for science, but also for uh, mitigating the risk of conjunctions. I like to use conjunction instead of collision. <laughs> yeah, we like to keep it theoretical when we're talking about satellites colliding. We keep it very much in the theoretical space. Yeah. Think about that next time you're on the DC Bellway. <laughs> yeah. It's a conjunction officer, I promise. <laughs> Well, well said. Uh, all right, well, let's, uh, let's close out here with, uh, with our final segment. Um, so we're going to transition to a, a segment that we call the five second scramble. Uh, so this is where we're going to do a, a rapid fire Q&A with, with both of our guests, um, some business, some personal, try to answer within five seconds. If you can, it goes over, we won't air horn you or anything like that. So let's start with you, Ben. Um, are you ready? Go. All right. Um, what is your favorite part of the culture at Quantum Space? Uh, camaraderie. Working together as a team. Nice. What kind of technologist thrives at Quantum Space? Uh, willingness to tackle new things, even if it's not what they're, they were trained or brought into the company to do. What traits do you value most in your co-founders? Um, I would say their ethics and their passion. What can our listeners be excited about with quantum space in 2024 and beyond? Uh, getting our spacecraft in orbit and providing uh, uh, all the services I mentioned earlier to them. <laughs> nice. Uh, what aspects of your culture do you most fear losing with growth? Mm, that's a great question. Fear losing with growth. Um, uh, I guess a sense of camaraderie, go yeah. back to that, right? It's, it's harder in larger companies to know everyone by name and all the details of their lives. Um, so that, that's something that I'd be ashamed to see go away. Okay. Describe your ideal breakfast meal. Oh, I'm a big breakfast guy. Um, <laughs> normally it's just cold cereal, but I, I'm down for, you know, two runny eggs, sausage, toast, a uh, cup of coffee. Just describe the grand slam at uh, a <laughs> yeah, <there> <laughs> Exactly. Um, what uh, What's something that you are good at but you hate doing? 
uh, good at, but I hate doing. Um, well, I'm not going to say picking up after my dogs. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, uh, I would say uh, I could maybe writing proposals. I'm a, a pretty good writer, but uh, I don't say that uh, I relish it before I begin. I think many would agree with you uh, in the proposal writing space. Yeah. What um, uh, if you could live in a uh, fictional world from a book or movie? Which one would you choose? Uh, let's see. Uh, I guess Star Wars. Yeah, love Star. I'm a big Star Wars fan. Right on theme here as well. <laughs> um, what is the worst fashion trend that you ever followed? The worst fashion. Well. I have no hair now, but uh, as a kid, my hair is very wavy, but all my friends had long hair, so I tried to follow them, and I looked like Bozo the Clown. It just went <laughs> straight out instead of down, but I, I kept it for a long time, and I should have seen the writing on the wall. Right, we'll nice. post those pictures in the show notes uh, <laughs> after the fact. What was your dream job as a kid? Uh, I worked four years on a university grounds crew of cutting grass, and it doesn't seem like a lot of fun to be in the hot sun in North Carolina cutting grass, but I, I, I had a great group of guys that I worked with, and you're outdoors every day cutting down a tree or, or doing something you know, like that, and that was, that was a lot of fun. That's great. What, um, uh, last, last question here, uh, hypothetical. If you were traveling to Mars for a you know, nice little, little vacation, what are three possessions from, from home that you would have to take with you? Three possessions from home that I got to take with me. Uh, uh, let's see, I guess my Star Wars collection of movies. Um, I'm a chili head. I love crazy hot uh, salsa and hot sauce. So I got to bring a bottle of... Uh, of something too hot, you know, other than a drop at a time. Um, and I got to have chips to go with that, right? You got to have the chips <laughs> and it's also together. So that's what I'll go with. Is that is there room for me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, movies, chips, and salsa. Yeah, I mean, I'm in. Let's go to Mars. <laughs> that's great. I've actually been following um, a little bit of a trend. It was from a pairing uh, on the show, um, which is chips and hot sauce just like dabbling a little hot sauce on the chips versus traditional salsa. Um, I think they're using like Tapatio or something. Not too, not too intense, but it sounds like you're, you've got oh. a, a serious heat factor that you're working with then. Yeah. My nephews uh, cajoled me into doing that with uh, Satan's blood. Oh. And so me and all my, my two boys and, and all my nephews, we all did Satan's blood on a chip. And that was, uh, that was pretty painful. <laughs> Just fried your your taste buds. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Good stuff. That's a that's a wrap for you. You're you're all set. Um, let's jump over to you, Derek. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. Um, explain Kahan space to me as if I were a five year old. Uh, don't crash your satellite. Do it this way instead. <laughs> How would you describe your culture? Um, close knit. I would say we're all really good friends. Excellent. What kind of technologist thrives at, at Kahan Space? I would say someone who is opinionated, but rational and willing to accept when we've come to the final, you know, uh, product that, that everyone agrees on. What can folks be most excited about for Kahan heading into you know, 2024 and, and beyond? Yeah, new features for sure. Um, definitely uh, co collaborations as well. Excellent. Um, 
what uh, uh if you could have any superpower what what would it be and why Ooh, superpower yeah um maybe maybe green thumb superpower to go with my gardening some bigger <laughs> tomatoes there you go what um uh, we're gonna keep with the mars theme here so if you were um if you're gonna establish the first fast food restaurant on mars what what uh what are you picking Ooh, well, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian, so I'm not going burger. Maybe we'll go with some onion rings. Mm. Yeah, Mars Martian onion rings. Nice. Okay, I could get behind that. <laughs> what um, what's something that you like to do, but you're not very good at? Ooh, good question. Let's see, something I like to do, but I'm not very good at. Uh, maybe maybe running. Yeah, just like just like exercising in general, maybe is really what I was going for there. <laughs> Always feels good after I'm doing it, but boy, am I sad while I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, I agree on that. Um, what's a charity or a corporate philanthropy that's near and dear to you? Ooh, yeah. Um, well, in my local area, we have the Mackenzie River Trust, which uh, is basically for maintaining the wild area around the Mackenzie River in Oregon, which is uh, I'm definitely very passionate about. Awesome. What's something that you're very afraid of? Dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just Come. mortality in general for any reason. Might be the number one answer on the board. Yeah. Uh, I bet you haven't well, gotten that one before, though. <laughs> Keep it simple. Uh, what, who is, the, um, who, who is your, your greatest superhero of all Ooh, time? It's got to be Spider-Man. Yeah, I'm a big Spider-Man fan. I just watched the, uh, the new animated uh, Into the Spider-Verse or Across the Spider-Verse. Excellent movie it's good yeah we we get batman spider-man top two answers there so um that's it and that's a wrap that was uh that was a good one that was fun i appreciate you guys uh dropping by and, and spending time with us we're, we're both uh, excited to keep tracking the innovative work that your your companies are doing and uh uh again appreciate you spending time with us on the pod thanks for having us it's been tremendous fun thanks so much for inviting me